Welcome to this week's episode of What I Wish People Knew About Minority Mental Health Stigma. Today we have Dr. Corrigan, a professor of psychology at Illinois Institute of Technology and licensed clinical psychologist. He is a renowned researcher in the field of mental health, particularly on the topic of stigma. Dr. Corrigan has been the author of 10 books, over 300 papers, and a contributor to the Honest, Open, Proud program. Welcome, Dr. Corrigan, to this week's episode of What I Wish People Knew About Minority Mental Health Stigma. Dr. Corrigan, can you explain what stigma means, especially in terms of mental health for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with this term? Um, the stigma of mental illness is in the same category as racism or sexism or homophobia, namely it's fundamentally prejudice and discrimination. Prejudice, some kind of belief that a group is less than we are, leading to discrimination, therefore they don't have the same rights and opportunities we do. And so the prejudice against people with mental illness is the idea that they're dangerous, unpredictable, incompetent. They chose to be this way, leading to the idea that landlords won't hire them, won't rent to them, or employers won't hire them, or primary care providers offer a substandard of care. Okay. So how how would you say that, other than uh, more blatant things like employment, how this affects the daily life of someone with a mental condition or illness? Well, I think for people with mental illness that work, they're always concerned about their colleagues um, responding to them in a negative way if they know, or students with mental illness who are in high school or college concerned about fellow students or professors discriminating against them, or people with mental illness who live in a community concerned that neighbors are excluding them from things. So it could be subtle and pervasive. Okay, so it's, it's a lot more subtle things. Um, and would you say that that people aren't always quite aware that they're stigmatizing someone? Oh, yeah. I don't think, I mean, I do think there is this awareness and fundamental bigotry and hatefulness towards racism in mm-hmm. particular. Um, I don't necessarily think people go around hating individuals with mental illness. If anything, they might pity them. And pity can have all sorts of bad effects, too. But regardless, it's these subtle things they're doing that have horrible impact. Yeah. Uh, what What would you say is one way that we can uh, fight to eradicate stigma? So that's what our research group is most interested in. We've been funded by the National Institute of Mental Health for about 15 years. And we're curious in what's the best way to change stigma. And one of the ironies of our research is, at least in adults, education really has no effect. So you might think that if you just taught adults that mental illness was biological or genetic, we'd stop blaming them for their illness. And there's some truth in that. You're less likely to blame a person with schizophrenia if you believe it's genetic. But the worst impact is you're less likely to think they're going to recover. And if I don't think they're going to get better, I as an employer are not going to hire them or a landlord going to rent to them. Another way of looking at this is in my lifetime, we've made great strides towards an LGBTQ agenda. Um, When I was a kid, coming out gay or lesbian had lots of risks to it. 
by the time my kids got to school, that pretty much had gone away, not because they learned in school that it was genetic or biological or gay people don't have any choice. It's by the time they got to school, they knew they had two gay uncles and a gay minister. And mm-hmm. Heck, by the time they got to school, they had these cool rainbow flags all over the place. And so we really push, and our research has shown the best way to deal with stigma mental illness is to have contact with people with mental illness. For the normal community, and I hate that word, for the community of people who don't have a mental illness to interact as peers with those that do. Okay, so it's more exposure versus um, educating or protesting, things like that. Yeah, and again, I ask your listeners to put this in perspective. Meeting a gay person and challenging your homophobia is not an educational, logical thing. You don't meet them and learn facts and logically fight against it. It's just a human day-to-day peer interaction that just tears down the bias. Right. So it's it's forming that human connection and relationship with someone um, makes it more of an everyday norm. Absolutely. Especially when we see them as peers. And you know, what's implicit in having a mental illness is being one down, is being less than the rest of us. And seeing them as peers really changes that dialogue. Right. Well, and I know as an, a, a contributor of the Honest, Open, Proud program, one thing that you really work on is disclosure of mental illness. Can you talk a bit about that program and how it relates to stigma? So the Honest, Open, Proud program has been developed over the last six or seven years by people with lived experience, people with mental illness. Um, and I throw myself in that category. Um, I have been diagnosed with major depression, bipolar disorder, generalized anxiety. Um, I've been hospitalized, know the shame of having to stand in line for that one phone call, for the single phone on the wall, call my wife and have her tell my daughter that I won't be at school that night. And so stigma is a reality, and so I partnered with uh, about a dozen other people with lived experience to develop the idea of Honest, Open, Proud, um, it's based on, and it really has two assumptions. One is being in the closet with your mental illness is horrible for your sense of well-being. Um, research clearly shows that gay people being forced into the closet is horrible for self-esteem, and so coming out can have a benefit to it. Um, and two is the more people are out, the more we're going to change public stigma, the belief of everybody in the public. Um, that said, we're not so naive as to argue that coming out is an easy, simple thing. And so Honest, Open, Proud is three lessons. The first lesson is to consider the pros and cons of coming out, which differ by situation. Coming out at work is a different thing than coming out in your faith-based community or your extended family. Um, the second is to test somebody before you come out. So, Grace, you seem to be a nice person. I could take you to Starbucks and say, hey, did you know Mariah Carey just came out and talked about her mental illness, and what do you think? Mm-hmm. And if you say, you know, I'm sick and tired of those famous people coming out, I sort of got the idea you're not a person, good person for me to disclose to. And then the third is it's my story, um, and so what should I say? 
Um, I had open prowls done with a group, small group of six to seven peers so you can get feedback. It also, by the way, is led by facilitators, trained facilitators with lived experience. So the whole thing is owned by people who are there or have been there. Okay. Well, that's great. And it, it seems like there are so many benefits to coming out, but also that you're making it more individualized based on that person's situation because there are some, some risks. Yeah, so we've done quite a bit of research on this and generally found people who've gone through the program, only about a third of people come out in the near future. However, most everybody seems to benefit from self-esteem, and part of the reason is they sort of say for the first time, wow, you know, I didn't know if I, I had control over this. I mean, even more, wow, I didn't know this was an identity that was okay to be proud of. And it kind of fights that, that isolation and shame of it, too. And absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that helps um, people in the gay community is to find like-minded other peers. Mm-hmm. And so the gay community has done well over the last 50 years to which they've come out and organized to do many things, but one is to provide support. And mm-hmm. so people with mental illness are doing the same thing. Yeah, and it's a great model to be following. Um well, Tori in July is Minority Mental Health Month, um, which is one of your areas of research. And if I remember correctly, the class you break up with the passion of yours. How did you become involved in minority mental health? Um, and why is this an important topic for research and even just discussion among the general population? Excuse me. Um, in addition to having concerns and wanting to impact people's serious mental illness, um, our group has this basic um, appreciation of social injustice, and really we believe a lot of the lost opportunities of people with mental illness are due to what's called social determinants, um, perhaps being of color or low income or less educated. Um, I like to say I'm a 1960s voyeur, so I grew up in Chicago in 1968, the big year of the Grant Park um, riots. Um, I was only 12 years old. I wasn't old enough to participate, but I was old enough to take it all in. And so I'm very motivated about these things of trying to promote equality. And so we're particularly interested in research that suggests people with serious mental illness get sick and die 20 to 30 years um, younger than everybody else. And if they're of color or low income, it's even worse. And so we've been very interested in practical solutions. One of them is the healthcare system for low-income people is fragmented. So in Chicago, you have to go way in the west side of the county hospital for your lung problems, and the north side, see a podiatrist for your foot problems, and the south side to go to your dentist and to the loop to get your pharmacy. And so we've hired... And we've done research on peer navigators. These are people with serious mental illness who are in recovery, typically from the same ethnic group, who literally walk around the service recipient um, in a supportive way, get on the L, take them out to the county hospital, sit them through their appointments, um, help them remember their prescriptions. Um, if they want it, go into the sessions with the healthcare provider, to provide additional information or support as, as the individual sees fit. Okay. So it seems like you're, in a way, building this 
this community that you've talked about a little bit that the LGBTQ population has um, to fight with that isolation and shame. So, you know, I, I, I like the way you put that. Um, yeah. Though it would be kind of grandiose for me to say we're building it. There is a lot of people who've been working in this space for a while. All we're trying to do is take mm-hmm. advantage of these good ideas and, and turn them into, together. yeah, put it all together. Yeah. Well, one of the it's the reasons that, because I've heard, you know, May was uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and now it's a separate month for minority and some feedback of, of why does it need to be separate. And these barriers that you're describing of this extra um, that minorities have to face, whether it's language or living in a impoverished community that doesn't have those same resources or they just don't know the resources around them. Uh, it's kind of helping fight those those other barriers. Well, on top of that, culture is a major player in mental health. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I've been around for a while. What I learned in school is the Western way, the cognitive behavioral way of dealing with everything, which has some benefit, but there are other cultures out there who don't see the world that way or um, don't experience mental illness in that way. And so programs need to be grounded in those cultures, which mean those cultures, people from those cultures, need to be full partners, not research subjects. You need to be full partners in um, the effort to improve their services. So it's it's more of, of understanding different cultures and not not approaching something with the assumption that you you know. Absolutely. And equally empowering people from different cultures so they can actually provide the service. Mhm. Well and then even with, with the peer um people going around that it, it that assumption still needs to be a little careful, right? Of of that just because uh, I am Caucasian, the person next to me is Caucasian, we're going to have the same experience and culture. Absolutely. I think the first lesson we try to teach our students is to recognize people are different than me, but don't pigeonhole them and assume because they're different by skin color or mm-hmm. gender, they all act the same way. Make sure, like any counseling experience, you have your antenna up and your ears open to how the individual person experiences things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, related to that, in minority groups, there seems to be a separate stigma that occurs in the group. I've often discussed the stigma that they face in the LGBTQ community. Uh, And I recently watched a speech that you had given at Carleton where you said that despite that you're working to eradicate stigma, you keep catching yourself doing it which I found a really relatable statement um, and one that's not openly discussed, um, which is about more of the microaggressions in a way than within group stigma. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit further? Yeah. um, I mean, to put it in perspective, I come from a very blue-collar background. Um, My brother um, and I are the only people in our extended family that ever went to college. And so we grew up knowing these people on the street as crazy, nuts, wacko, and it's not an easy thing to shake. Um, Similarly, my father grew up talking about ethnic groups in ways I would never do, and I've learned to change my language, but those are hard lessons to learn. Uh, Microaggressions are these subtle things that people do, perhaps 
um, seeing a person with a disability, seeing a person with autism and stepping away from them or sitting away farther from them on the train. And I think you want to be mindful of those subtle differences. Yeah, but also uh, it's really hard to catch yourself doing that, especially, you know, as you talk about when it's so ingrained into how you grew up and what you were taught. Yeah, I think one of my fun stories is my kids grew up with this anti-stigma stuff, and my son went to Disneyland and came back, and I greeted him at the airport, and he had this white baseball hat with the word psycho on it and blood dripping off of it. Um, yeah, it's everywhere. It's a tough battle. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a hard one to completely erase, but for some of our listeners who are looking to become involved, um, further in the, in the process and, and with helping to fight stigma, what, what would you suggest or some ways they could do so? Well, I really think it's important. One of the points we're talking about now is I, I urge people to be careful about being word police. I mean, you, you don't want to catch people and scold them for saying wacko and nuts and the like because usually that's really off-putting, and our goal is to engage and partner with people, not scold and put them in their place. Mm-hmm. Or um, make them become defensive. Or make them become defensive. Um, I think the goal... Um, what I would say is the goal is not just to erase stigma. The goal is to promote affirming attitudes and behavior. So the goal is to promote recovery and self-determination. And my sense is most of the public do not understand or get that yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things for your listeners is that the outcome for schizophrenia is not nearly as bad as what I learned in school. I learned that if you're schizophrenia, it was a kiss of death diagnosis, Mm -hmm. and you should prepare for the back ward. And actually, long-term follow-up research suggests about one-third of people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia get over it like a bad cold. About one-third is like a very challenging case of diabetes, which is they probably need to take their medication and be in touch with their health care provider and watch their lifestyle. And about one-third is what we think of, and even the great majority of them can do just fine if they have appropriate rehab approaches. Uh So we need to, people need to change their lens by which they look at people with mental illness instead of them being doomed. It's just a different way of experiencing the world. So the outcomes are changing, but the mindset of society has not caught up in a way. I think it's slower. And I really think the secret to changing this, I mean, there's benefits for people to hear this discussion we're having, Grace, Mm -hmm. but the real thing that's going to change it is the degree to which people meet others with mental illness. Wow, you had schizophrenia and you're not locked up? I mean, I think that just really changes the experience. Mm -hmm. Because then it's not as this unknown makes it something that's, scary because you don't know about it. You don't know someone who's talked about it and has it. Um, and then that makes that, you know, this kind of ambiguous, um, almost like a taboo in a way. I agree. I think you summed it up perfectly. Okay. Well, is there anything else you would like to add before um, we go? Just that I think it's important that people realize this is not a trivial issue. 
In fact, I'm convinced the stigma of mental illness can be as big a problem as a mental illness itself. And so just as we need to help people deal with their mental illness, we need to help communities deal with their stigma. And so discussions like this are a first good step. Yeah, and then maybe getting involved um, right. in any way that you can. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this with us today. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Grace. For more information and resources on minority mental health, check out our blog page at www.acceptantherapy.com. Now for this week's self-care challenge. Take a few minutes every day to identify two to three positive things about your identity that you're proud of. For example, I am patient, a good daughter, and a hard worker. Try to do it twice at least this week. If you can do it more, then great. This will help you form a positive self-image and increase your self-esteem. Thank you for listening to the What I Wish People Knew podcast. Thank you.